The kingdom of God is hidden and it's secret. It's also a spiritual kingdom, which means it's spiritually perceived. First Peter chapter one or two tells us that we're actually a kingdom of priests, which furthers the idea that we actually participate in God's kingdom spiritually. And so what does it actually mean that we're a kingdom of priests unto God? And what does it mean to be priests dedicated to God? That's what we'll be looking at today in the sixth episode, all about the kingdom of God. Okay, as it relates to God's kingdom, here's where we're going today. This is the second to last episode. Uh, Monday or Wednesday will be the final episode on this uh, series of the kingdom of God. Well, technically. And then Friday, next Friday, will be a special event where we go through every single one of the parables of Jesus that has to do with the kingdom. I think that's really where I'm most excited to go. Um, But today, we're going to look at how the kingdom of God is actually hidden. There's a secret hidden dimension to the kingdom of God. Uh, Number two, you'll see that God's kingdom is spiritual, meaning it's spiritually perceived. If you want to participate in the kingdom, there's a spiritual dimension to that. There's a way to function in God's kingdom that is spiritual. You're going to look, we're going to look at how God's kingdom is about priests that follow in the priesthood of Yeshua, the great high priest, the true and eternal high priest. And we're going to look at what it means that Jesus is our high priest briefly because I've touched on this in detail in, in, in future messages or in past messages. I'm also prophetically declaring I'm going to talk about it later. And then the last thing we'll talk about is how God's kingdom of priests actually involves sacrifice and varying degrees of rule and responsibility as we see in the original um, Levitical priesthood. There's a lot to unpack here. I think this is going to be really cool. I wasn't sure, honest. I'll, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure where I was going to go with this. I thought, dang it, I put this on the calendar. I told them we'd talk about it. I don't even know what we're going to talk about. And it all just beautifully came together this morning. I'll be very honest. <laughs> it came together this morning. And so we're going to look at how God's kingdom is hidden and secret. And I know some of you have an idea of what that means. Um, and depending on where you stand on the side of Calvinistic theology, you might interpret this one way or another, but it still rings true. Luke chapter 8, verse 10. <coughs> It says, this is Jesus explaining uh, the parable of the sower, the farmer who goes out and sows, plants seed, and then it falls on different grounds. He explains to the disciples privately, you know, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So there are secrets of the kingdom of God, and you go, well, at that point in human history, it was secret, it was hidden from the nation of Israel. And yeah, for the purposes of God, we'll see this in 1 Corinthians uh I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where this was actually concealed on purpose. Um, And the nation of Israel is in the prime position for Jesus to come and begin revealing these secrets of the kingdom so that they're actually, it just goes over their head because they've been so spiritually um, distant from God and so over time hardened um, by the tradition and the things that have crept in that are not of God and This is the prime time in human history for Jesus to come. Galatians tells us this at just the right time, at the fullness of time Jesus came. But Jesus tells the disciples, it is to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. For others, though, they are in parables. So let's talk about this real quick. Jesus speaks in parables a lot of the time. This relates to the final episode that we're going to go through uh, next Friday, talking about all the parables of Jesus. But you go, why does Jesus talk in parables? Because seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. They have ears, but they don't perceive or really understand what they're hearing. They see, 
but they don't really spiritually perceive what's in front of them and what's truly happening. So Jesus goes, I talk in parables in, in essence because they're in a position to miss it. And it's the perfect time for me to reveal to you the secrets of the kingdom of God. Now, at that point, Israel nationally, uh, the majority of Israel, not the fullness of Israel, there's always a remnant, but the majority of Israel is in a spiritually deafened state, in a spiritually hardened state and condition where they've actually grown dull and hard to the things of God. And it's, again, the perfect time for Jesus to come and reveal the secrets of the kingdom in uh, cloaked ways. And so he packages truth in parables so that they don't understand or perceive what's truly happening. And that's on purpose. It's so that the purpose for which Jesus comes can be accomplished, namely that he's put on the cross and he yields his life up to the Father to sacrifice himself for human evil. So all of this plays into why he talks about in parables. But he tells the disciples the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. To know. I'm going to highlight them in blue. So the disciples get to understand the secrets. Jesus explains the secrets. And yet at times you go, are these knuckleheads even getting it? It's like he's talking to a brick wall. Three brick walls. They're just not getting it. Well, in some sense they are. Later on, though, he says the Spirit of God will bring uh, the truth to mind. And you'll remember all these things and even grow deeper in these things. But for now, there's almost like a blockage. There's like a spiritual blockage. They're spiritually constipated. And then when the Spirit of God comes and really brings these things to life and brings out these revelations, it's like the dam breaks open and all this stuff finally clicks for them. But Jesus does reveal the secrets of the kingdom. I don't want to get too down, <clears throat> too far down that. I just want to show you that the kingdom of God is very hidden and secretive. Not in the sense that God's trying to not let other people know, but in the sense that if you're not in a spiritual heart condition to recognize what God is doing, you'll miss it. If you don't have spiritual eyes to see and perceive and understand the gospel when it's being relayed to you, you'll miss it. And this is, again, why I said I typically hear at this point part with those who hold to your mainstream Calvinistic theology, which is not a conversation for today. But Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's like a grain of mustard seed, small, insignificant, and that a man took and sowed in his field. Another translation will say hid in his field. The concept is still true. Seeds, when they go underground, they're hidden for a period of time until they break forth and you start to realize there's something underground that whole time. Dang, I didn't see that. It is the smallest of all seed, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Yes, this speaks of the grand magnificence of the kingdom and the reach and the influence of the kingdom and really the cosmic takeover of God's kingdom. But it also speaks to the seeming insignificance because it's hidden and you don't know it's there. Jesus will continue to speak in this way about the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What's the point? That the kingdom of God, and there are other dimensions to this truth, but the main point is that, yeah, the kingdom of God is something that remain, that is small and hidden and insignificant for a period of time, and then it grows and becomes very evident. But the things regarding the spiritual kingdom of God must be spiritually perceived. And so we go down to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, and it says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. 
which a man found and covered up, or you might say hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And I used to read this and think, wow, that's, that's the kind of value we should have for the kingdom is we abandon anything that gets in the way of us attaining this kingdom. I used to read it like that. I think what's actually taking place here is that this speaks to what Jesus has done in regards to laying down his life to purchase and make way for this new kingdom that we now have access to. It's actually him coming down and making a purchase, redeeming us. And so there is a secretive dimension and hidden uh, dimension to the spiritual kingdom of God. How you make sense of that, that might be an entirely different series. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2 gives us some indication of what this means. Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. So Paul, just like Jesus, is imparting spiritual wisdom. But it's not like the wisdom of the rulers of this age or of this world. That's why people didn't understand who Jesus was or what he was doing. Even those closest to him missed a lot of what he was doing during his ministry. So it says, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. And you go, why? Why is the kingdom of God, why does it come in this secretive form where only the remnant, those who are truly seeking for God, can recognize what's happening? Well, number one, that's just the way God relates to humanity, is that he comes, he brings opportunity, he brings invitation, he gives evidence. If people choose to not want to see that, or they're choosing to ignore and deny what's happening, and they're not in a heart condition to receive what God is doing, they'll miss it. The second reason, though, is actually seen in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. What did they not understand? They didn't understand the secret hidden wisdom of God. So that's what it means that God's spiritual kingdom and the things of his kingdom, his wisdom is secretive, is that it's not understood by people who are operating by the framework of this world, who are operating by the mentality and the worldview and the perspective of this world. Your reasoning faculties if you continue to let those be influenced by the cultures and sin and your flesh and the world, you will process the same data I am evaluating and interpret it differently. And I go, Jesus is Lord. And you go, he's no one but a possibly a good guru that said some good things if he was even real. And we're analyzing the same data through a different lens. None of the rulers understood this. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I'd like to submit to you that, yes, Paul does have in mind the spirit the physical rulers of Israel and Rome at the time that were a part of the crucifixion and condemning Jesus. But as we read the letters of Paul, uh, the way he talks about the rulers of this age, the rulers in the heavenly places, a lot of the times, not always, but for a large percentage of the time, he's referring to the spiritual rulers behind the physical rulers of this world. There are spiritual beings who are influencing, manipulating, and puppeteering the physical rulers in this world. And so he might have both in mind here. Either way, what we know is this, that the mystery of the kingdom, the wisdom of God seen in the gospel is actually God intentionally hides that and conceals it so that not only people who are not positioned to recognize the truth won't see it, but also 
so that and you go this seems to go against the the, the god i'm used to who is gracious and inviting we, again we could talk about this later this is not god saying i don't want you i want you so this is not a legitimate invitation this is god legitimately offering but the means by which he invites people into his kingdom is 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 purposed to divide those who are of the truth and those who are not of the truth to divide those who are truly seeking god from those who are not to divide those who love the light and want to find God from those who are loving the darkness and sin and want nothing to do with truth or God. So it draws a dividing line in the sand. It furthers the condemnation people are under by their own sin and denial of truth. But also it's this. It seems as though God secretively delivers the truth of the gospel for the purpose of not allowing the enemy and his kingdom to know what's truly happening. If they knew that they were sealing their own fate by condemning Jesus to the cross through the Israelite and Roman rulers, they wouldn't have done what they did to Christ. They're not that stupid. But the kingdom of darkness is pretty stupid (laughs) in that sense. And you go, how does this relate to the kingdom? You will see. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, actually tells us this, just referring to the gospel. Paul says, look, I've been commissioned to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the, the mystery that was hidden for ages in God? Colossians chapter 1 will speak of this mystery. And Ephesians chapter 2, right before this, speaks of this mystery. The mystery is, <clears throat> right here, new humanity, or the family of God, that uh, Jesus has created in himself one new man in place of both Jew and Gentile. That's the main mystery, is that God has created one new humanity through his Son so that anyone can be a part of this kingdom and family. Verse 9 goes on, the mystery hidden for ages in God. This is what Paul's preaching. He's preaching a mystery. It doesn't mean it can't be understood. It doesn't mean it can't be perceived. It actually means that God is wanting people to know, but it is mysterious until uncovered. And some people, even when it's uncovered, choose to deny it and reject it and want nothing to do with it. And in that sense... They're not spiritually perceiving what God is uncovering for them. The plan of the mystery hidden for God in in ages, or for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, this is why I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, hold on, let me fix my mic for a second. It's bugging me, big time. That should be better. They're just bothering me. Um, that's why I said in 1 Corinthians 2 that the rulers and authorities, I believe Paul mainly has in mind, are the spiritual rulers and authorities over this world currently uh, who are slowly losing grip on the world. And the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places here, he says, yeah, God has chosen to reveal his mysterious hidden wisdom that wasn't even known to the angels, that angels longed to look into. That mystery, which for Colossians 1 will say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery is revealed through the church. Well, who is it being revealed to? Well, it's being revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, which means what? It wasn't previously known. It wasn't previously known. Um, hopefully that whole time you actually heard what I was saying. I'd be bummed out if you weren't. Uh, let me know in the chat if any, if you, if there was no sound at some period of time. The only person that said there was no sound was 
Agape love. Make sure my internet's good. Internet's solid. Am I good? I will wait. I will not move forward. I can hear great. Yay. Thank you, Jessica. Yes. Okay. It's just a bummer, man, when you talk and then you're like, I have to re-say everything I said. No, I don't want to do that. You can't duplicate what the Spirit of God is doing in a moment. What I was saying before I got distracted is that God has chosen to reveal his hidden wisdom to the kingdom of darkness, to even the spiritual rulers and authorities that are that are bad and those who are actually good angelic beings that follow God. All rulers and authorities in the heavenly places did not previously know the fullness of God's mystery until it becomes progressively unveiled through not just Jesus in his work, but through the church at large. In other words, God is progressively unveiling the mystery of the gospel throughout human history to all the spiritual rulers and authorities. But notice that it was hidden at one point. Again, the mystery is that Jew and Gentile, one new humanity in the family of God through Christ, the ultimate Savior. Colossians 1.26 says, uh, the mystery that was hidden for ages, and Paul's saying, look, I'm a steward of this. Same thing he said in Ephesians 3. I'm a steward of the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed to his saints. So in, in Ephesians 3, it was being revealed through the church to the spiritual rulers in the heavenly places. Here, it's God revealing his hidden mystery regarding his kingdom, regarding his gospel, regarding his son to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you were to sum up the entirety of God's mystery and his kingdom and his gospel, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, of course, beyond that, it trickles out down into subcategories for sure. I get that. But the point here is that there is a mysterious hidden dimension to the kingdom of God, to his gospel, to his son. And it's on us to understand not just why, but how that fits into our life and our paradigm of the world. So know this, part of what it means that God's kingdom is hidden and and secretive. And, and again, this is not God going, I only want some, I don't want everyone. So I'm going to deliver this secret truth to some that I want and the people that I really don't want, I'm not going to let them know this secret. It's that the kingdom of God is delivered in through Jesus's ministry during that time of Israel, specifically during that time of human history. The mystery of the gospel and the kingdom was revealed in parables, packaged in parables, for the purpose of um, Jesus accomplishing his work on the cross. But now, it doesn't mean that there's no mysterious element to the gospel or his kingdom because it's fully manifest. No, there still is a mysterious element to it. It is fully known. It is recognized. There's evidence. We understand the mystery. But for those who are not a part of the kingdom and are operating by the framework of this world and the reasoning faculties are just you know, corrupted by sin and, and they're not making sense of things right and they're not seeking for truth or God, they hear the gospel of the kingdom, which is mysterious truth, and they perceive it differently than we do. They interpret it differently because not God has hardened them into no chance to being a child of God. That's not what that sentence probably didn't make sense. It's not that God has hardened people by his own admission, you know, arbitrarily before they ever existed so they could never even understand the gospel. It's that there are people who, like the Bereans, seek to understand, 
or like the good soil in the parable of the farmer, are good hearts receptive to the gospel, and there are those who are not. And so that's why, this is exactly why 1 Corinthians will go on to say that Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. He gets in the way of what they're pursuing, and they regard him as trash, get out of the way, when he's actually the cornerstone. And in the same way, the Gentiles look at him as foolishness, when in fact, actually, Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. That's the argument of 1 Corinthians. That's why it fits perfectly into the spiritual wisdom aspect that, um, uh, yeah, that he'd be furthering the gospel in that sense. The second thing to note is that God's kingdom is spiritual, which is another way of making sense of why and how the spiritual kingdom of God is hidden or secretive in that sense. Um, Let's go on. John 18, 36, it says, My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus standing before Pilate. If my kingdom were, my servants would have been fighting. But they're not, are they? Which means my kingdom is not of this world. And that's happening so that I might, you know, otherwise they'd be fighting so that I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom's not of this world. So all this comes together to form a picture of why the world and Israel and Rome are in the position they need to be for Jesus to accomplish the atonement. All the characters, all the people, all the different things that God needs to set be in place are in place for the Messiah to come and do what he does. Romans 14, 17. When I say that the kingdom of God is spiritual, here's primarily what I mean. And this relates to us being priests. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. If you're going to boil it down to just what you allow into your body dietary-wise, you're missing it. It's actually a matter of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean those things are disconnected from your decision to adhere to dietary laws found in Torah. What this means of is, is if you boil down the kingdom only to what I choose to eat or not, or what I allow to go into my body or not, you're, you're missing the spiritual dimension of the kingdom, which is, yeah, it is what you do with your body and how you submit yourself to God, but it is also not just an, an issue of uh, moral exertion in my own efforts and striving. It's actually a matter of spiritually experiencing what the Spirit of God produces through me, that being righteousness, peace, and joy. And it can be alongside those things. I'm not going to try and put them at odds with the dietary laws and what people choose to eat or not. I'm just saying be careful how you choose to summarize or what you prioritize as it relates to God's calling on your life. Apparently, if we're going to talk about the kingdom, the dimensions this is what Jesus talks about, how he desires, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, you can make all the sacrifices in the world and call it obedience and call it faith. But at the end of the day, um, what God has called us to be and do is to be like Christ and do what he did. Now, those things might fit into that, but he has to be motivating that. It's the Lord who has to be producing those works through us, not my own moral exertion and efforts in, contr- in, in opposition to God's will for me. John four twenty three and 24, it says, The hour is coming. Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And it's actually now here when the true worshipers, which means what? 
I, I've always read this, and I think just now it's clicked for me in this very second. That if he highlights true worshipers, what does that assume there is? That there are false worshipers. Think about that. Those who are truly worshiping God, as opposed to think of the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, crying out to Baal, cutting themselves, sacrificing whatever they could make fire come down. Where are you? Elijah goes, he's probably on the toilet. That whole scenario gives you a picture of what it looks like to be a false worshiper. Can that translate into how one relates to the true God of Israel or the true God of heaven and earth? It can. can. You can have the same data I do and choose to worship him in a way he's not prescribed. So, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's just what I'm trying to highlight. Is that to be an actual worshiper of the true and living God means my worship is in spirit and according to the truth, or even motivated by the truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I mean, in, in two verses, two small verses, he repeats this idea so much. He's letting the woman at the well know, if you really want to care about God and his kingdom and the things of him, you'll be more concerned about worshiping him properly according to how he's prescribed in spirit and according to truth. And the spirit of God has to be um, driving that. This is not just in some vague spiritual way. I worship God. This is the spirit of God within me leading me according to the truth into the truth is moving me to worship in a way that honors the father. John chapter three Verse 3 through 6. This relates to the kingdom. Promise. Jesus answered Nicodemus, who goes, you really are from God. And Jesus goes, I know exactly what you're getting at. Let's just cut to the chase. Unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Another translation says, born from above. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, no, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, which is the human birth, and the spirit, which is a spiritual birth, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Yet to be born from above, to be born of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So, In order to participate in God's kingdom, be a part of his kingdom, and engage in proper worship of God, there's a spiritual dimension to that. You have to be spiritually born again. The Holy Spirit has to recreate you to be a brand new creation with a new heart and new mind and new spirit, and all of that happens when you believe. It's called spiritual baptism. People want to make that a separate event that you experience throughout your life. And I think there are moments where you're extra filled with the Spirit in terms of I'm more aware and controlled by and submitted to the leading of the Spirit. But you are once for all filled with the fullness of God's Spirit uh, the minute you believe. So the reason I start like this is because, and you're like, starting, we're 30 minutes in. It's a starting place. God's kingdom is hidden and secret and it's spiritual. Meaning, 
when we talk about being a kingdom of priests, we've already talked about this, so go watch episode two. Episode two is where I talk about how in ancient culture, every nation, and even now I think this is true, it's just more discreet and hidden. But every kingdom, every nation, every people and tribe has a, I won't say people and tribe because then we're boiling this down to ethnicity. I'll say every kingdom and nation you're a part of is centralized around a kind of theology and a kind of view of God or what you perceive to be God's, meaning every kingdom around Israel, every nation had their set of gods, had their prescribed way of worship, had their temple, had their priests, had their sacrifices. Everyone did that kind of spiritual thing and had those spiritual responsibilities and rituals. And it's different with God and his kingdom, but those things are still intact. Meaning to be a part of the kingdom of God is still to have uh, a faith-based relationship that is centrally focused around God's temple, his presence, his word, his prescribed way of worship, um, his kingdom, his laws, all these different things. And so when we talk about being priests of God, which is true, whether you're male or female, however old you are, if you're 15, if you're 84, we are all in Christ. We, in Christ, we are priests of God because Jesus is the great ultimate high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which we'll see. But I want to show you a few verses to validate what I'm saying. I'll start in Revelation. Just seems like a good place to go. Revelation 5.10, there's a new song being sung uh, by the elders, by the creatures, and I think the saints are partially involved in this, but either way, there's a song being sung to the God of heaven, the only true and living God, and they say, worthy are you to take the scroll, worthy are you to open its seals, this is being sung to the lamb, sorry. I was like, hold on, I remember this. Yeah, they're singing and praising and declaring this to the Lamb. King Jesus is receiving this praise and honor. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Notice three specific words I've highlighted. The concept of being a kingdom, which is to be the citizens that occupy God's domain of rulership and his sphere of authority, which is all things, but specifically the kingdom being you belong to and you are loyal to God as your king. You're in his kingdom as a citizen. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you're a priest to God. The third thing is that you will reign on the earth in new creation with Christ. Now, for John, these ideas all collide, meaning to, to do our priestly duty and to do our priestly service unto God involves functioning as citizens of his kingdom. It means you have to be loyal subjects of him to do the priestly service because you have to be spiritually recreated to be compatible with the spiritual works and service he has for you, right? Otherwise, you can't worship him in spirit if your spirit's dead. So the spirit of God resurrects our spirit, makes us alive, so we can, we're now compatible. We're now fitted for, our DNA is what it needs to be to do the spiritual service 
of the priesthood, the true priesthood God has called us to be. The third dimension is that you reign on the earth in new creation with Christ. Meaning, in our heads, we usually disconnect priest, king, prophet. That's just the categories we've created in the Old Testament. And while I do believe there are some strong dividing lines between those roles and between those positions, they do cross over at times. You'll see a priest king. You'll see a priestly prophet. You'll see a prophet king. Like these, David, you know, Melchizedek, uh, the, the list goes on and on. Maybe not. Maybe it's just those guys. But for sake of argument, understand that part of our priestly rule is to reign in the kingdom under God as the ultimate king. Meaning to be a priest involves you and I having a degree of rule and authority in new creation, responsibility, management, accountability. Isn't that crazy? Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom. Which I want you to look at the, the language that has been used twice already. You don't become a kingdom. Uh, you don't achieve yourself or in, educate yourself into the kingdom. You don't make yourself. Jesus makes us into a kingdom. Meaning we're trusting him to do the work for us. I'm not pulling myself up by the bootstraps to become something that can finally be in the presence of God. He formats me, recreates me spiritually from the inside out so that I'm now compatible with the presence of God and his service and his works and his kingdom and all that he has for me, for us. He's made us a kingdom, priests to God, his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Meaning when Jesus appoints his people to be priests under the service of him, the ultimate high priest and king and ultimate prophet and everything, he's the, he's the substance of every type and shadow in the Old Testament. When he appoints us to be priests, it is in the direction of God. Meaning my service as a priest, your service as a priest in the kingdom of God is to do what the king prescribes and to offer your loyalty and your service and your worship and your affection towards him. In other words, he's the object of our service and our worship in every sphere of life. Whether it's my finances, whether it's my relationships, whether it's my marriage, whether it's how I conduct myself at work, whether it's how I deal with those nasty comments I'm receiving, whether it's how I train my children up, whether it's how I'm driving in the middle of traffic and and people are annoying and bothering me, and I really just want to jump out of my car and break every window. In every moment and sphere that God has given me, I need to learn how to function as, or see myself as someone who has been given a priestly responsibility to serve, to steward, and to worship God as a priest, to worship God in that context. Meaning now there's a spiritual dimension to everything that we do that has the potential to be honorable to God. Uh, without Christ and without being born again in the Spirit, that opportunity lies dead, dead at the door. But in Christ now, that's a possibility. Uh, by the grace of God, every moment I find myself in, everything I put my hands to, that God, you know, 
that God has entrusted to me and responsibility-wise has the potential to glorify God. And I can offer it as a spiritual sacrifice. 1 Peter 2, 4-9 through 9 is really the clearest picture of what this means. And then we'll look at Jesus, our high priest. Because any sacrifice I offer is not to re- try and replace his, not to try and add to his as if it's incomplete. His sacrifice is for sin. Our sacrifice is just purely out of love and worship and reverence and thankfulness and security. Security in Christ's work and sacrifice for us. But it will be in imitation to Jesus. When I sacrifice and serve as a priest in the spiritual kingdom of God, I'm going to imitate the great high priest. And how did he do it? That'll tell me how I do it. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9. I really want to take this passage a little slower because there's a lot of gold. A lot of gold. It says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy, set-apart, uniquely different priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's a lot to unpack there, isn't it? So, let's back it up. Why does Peter want to mention the fact that Jesus is the living stone or the cornerstone that men rejected, but God regarded as chosen and precious? Because Jesus sets the tone and gives us the example of what it looks like to truly serve and follow God obediently and sacrificially. He sets the framework. He gives us the model. He was rejected by men. What should I expect? As I just try to serve and love God, there will be a lot of rejection from people of the world that want nothing to do with God. There will be a lot of that that I should expect to face. Maybe not to the degree and not be, maybe not in the way Jesus did. But he said, if they persecuted the master, what do you think they're going to do to his servants? But know this, that God regards him as chosen and precious. Meaning, I should not care about the people around me who don't have the spirit of God and how they evaluate what I'm doing unto God. I should only care, Father, unto you. Is this a sacrifice that's acceptable? I just care about you regarding this as a precious sacrifice. Because you've chosen me. And he says, you yourselves like living stones. So he brings it back to Jesus being the true living stone. And he goes, kind of like that. You yourselves are living stones being built up one on top of another, one alongside another, to be a spiritual house collectively. This gives you a different picture of what the church is. What the temple was for Israel Right, that dwelling place of God among his people is what we are to be to God now and to the world now. And so it's not that it, Israel as a nation, lots of the people didn't follow and worship God, but God's holy presence was still in their midst. And the temple marked that sacred territory, right? Technically, all the land was God's you know, allotted territory to his people and their inheritance. 
but the real sacred place on that plot of land was the temple or tabernacle. In the same way, we are to be a holy, set-apart, dwelling place of God collectively to the world around us. So think about that as it relates to being a priest. You would have different, um, different divisions of the Levitical priesthood. Um, within the Levites, of course, not every Levite was a priest, but every priest had to be a Levite. And so the priests were separated. And you had different uh, tribes or clans that would focus on a specific responsibility, meaning duties and responsibilities varied. Everyone had, even in the priesthood, varying degrees of responsibility and duty. And being the high priest meant that you had close proximity to God on the Day of Atonement. And that was an extra special appointment and position from God that only one person got to play the role of during their lifetime until someone else would pick up the mantle. But no matter what, in the temple or in the tabernacle, different priests, and especially depending on whether they descend directly from Aaron, different priests would do different things whether it's tending to the menorah, whether it's dealing with the blood or the incense, whether it's dealing with you know, the actual cutting of the animal or, or boiling of the meat. Different priests play different roles. And in the same way, I want you to think about this. The reason Peter here wants to correlate, not the only reason, but one of the big reasons he wants to correlate our identity to what Jesus uh, fulfilled as the high priest is because there's going to be different roles. And this is why Jesus will say in John 14 or 15 that greater works than these will he do, those who believe in me. Jesus passes the mantle to his people to go and do the works that he's commissioned them to do, which in some sense, in the mind of Jesus, have a dimension of greaterness, whatever that means. But we as the people of God play a different role in the body. We play a different role as living stones, a part of this spiritual temple. Since we're filled with the Spirit of God, we are now uh, the dwelling place of God in the earth. And we all have different roles to play as we follow in the likeness of Jesus, our great high priest. As we follow, you know, in his ways. Because our priesthood is um, derived from him. And so, being a spiritual house is connected to being a holy priesthood. The priesthood side of things emphasizes the doing and the serving and the rituals and the sacrifices, that side. The house represents the presence of God where those things take place. So now it's not, I have to rely on certain people to go to a specific place to do specific things to God for me. Now it's actually God dwells in you by his spirit. So anywhere he calls you, you have the ability now, by his grace, to commit whatever is in front of you unto him as a spiritual sacrifice, and it's pleasing to him. Because Jesus, the living stone, exclusive, you know, cornerstone of the temple itself, of us, he was chosen and precious, and we also are like living stones, representing God and doing service, and what it means to function as the kingdom of priests and what it means to function as the dwelling place of God in the earth collectively is that we're bringing sacrifices acceptable to God. Throughout Israel's history, 
at different points, they're very, um, it's very clear that their sacrifices and their rituals and their practices are an abomination to God. And they're doing like on paper what God said to do, but they're just going through the motions. It's mindless, it's careless, it's thoughtless. There's no heart involved. It's attached to a life of sin and wickedness and idolatry. So it's as if not only are those sacrifices not to be regarded like Cain's offering, but those offerings at different points of Israel's throughout Israel's history, those offerings are actually a, an abomination. And at one point, I think it's in Amos, God will say, I wish you would just shut the doors of the temple. So there is such a thing as trying to bring a sacrifice to God that is not acceptable to him. There is such a thing as trying to worship God and be spiritual in a way that's not acceptable to him. One of the ways we can discern, well, how do I know when it's acceptable or not, is James will tell us, or Paul, I forget who, the New Testament, it'll say, I think it's James, anything not done from faith, to him it is sin. To him it is sin. Meaning if you're doing anything, this is not just a believer who's doing something and calling it a sacrifice or service to God, even though it's not from faith. That is one dimension of it. A believer can possibly do that. This is talking about an unbeliever outside of Christ bringing their, I don't know, bag of moral goodies and spiritual duties and all their rituals and service and their spirituality, and they're breaking that bag open and going, whatever being or God or universe is here, I'm bringing a sacrifice. It's not acceptable to God. Every sacrifice we bring has to be in response to the sacrifice Jesus has made for us. It cannot be trying to replace what he's done. It can't be trying to add to what he's done as if it's incomplete. No, we trust in his sacrifice. So if I'm going to bring spiritual gifts and sacrifices to God that are acceptable, they have to be motivated firstly and be built firstly on my faith in Jesus alone. Meaning the very first act of obedience is to believe the gospel. And when you do, you're now fitted for and capable of doing the spiritual, I guess, responsibilities God has called you to. But also it's through Jesus Christ. That's why I said if you are trying to complete the work of Christ or add to or sustain or maintain as if his work is incomplete and insufficient, you're missing it. And if you don't believe in the gospel and you reject Jesus as Messiah and you're bringing sacrifices and things to God that you think this will get me in, it's not acceptable. It's an abomination to him. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, Peter concludes, based on this quotation from Isaiah 28, The honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Remember how I said connected to being a priesthood is this idea that the spiritual kingdom of God is hidden and mysterious. And how everyone evaluates the data of Jesus differently and they come to different conclusions. 
And some people go, ah, he's just a good prophet. Ah, he's just like John the Baptist. Or ah, he's just a good guru. Or ah, he's just another, you know, fill in the blank. For those who are believers, they look at the data and go, he's the son of God. He's the only true sacrifice for sin. He's the only redeemer and savior. He's the eternal word living, you know, made flesh, emanating from the father. So the honor's for you who believe, but for those who don't, Jesus is regarded as something to be thrown away and rejected. And the irony is that people are, everyone's building a life. Matthew chapter 7 makes this clear. You're either building your life, which is a figurative house on sand, or you're building it on the rock. Everyone's building something. Everyone's building a life. But the irony for people who reject Jesus is that they've rejected the only one that their house can stand on. And they're going, he doesn't fit my picture of what life should be. Jesus doesn't fit my idea of what I want God to be or what I think God wants of me. He doesn't fit the narrative I've already painted in my mind and decided for God to fit. He doesn't fit that. For the Jew, ah, he's not power. You know, for the Greek, ah, he's not wisdom. And Paul's going in 1 Corinthians, he's literally power and wisdom personified. He's the one that holds the, the building together. So while you're building your own little life outside of Christ, God is inviting you to be built on his son and be a part of a grander, more majestic, eternal house than you could ever imagine. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You wonder why Peter brings this in. Because Paul will tell Timothy, all who desire to live a life of godliness will be persecuted. So you and I go, I'm just trying to be a priesthood. I'm just trying to serve God. I don't want any trouble. And the world's going, we know. And we don't even know who you are, but we hate you. And we want to kill anything you're doing in the name of God. We want to stomp it out. and want to make sure there's nothing left of it. And you go, I don't even know who you are. And they go, we don't care. You say you belong to God and you're serving him. We're going to get in the way. This is just the nature of what it means to live as priests unto God, is that there will always be something flying in your face throughout your life trying to stop the work of God from being done through you. Just as Jesus. Everyone's trying to thwart the work. Even Peter stands in the way and goes, you'll never go. And Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Peter goes, did not expect to be called Satan this morning. I would have stayed in bed if I knew that was going to happen. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Now, don't get all Calvinistic on me. The whole point is those who disobey the word, the gospel, reject Jesus. That category of people, God has decided, if you choose not to believe, here's what happens. But he goes, but you are a chosen race. So you go, what ethnicity does God truly see in us? Well, I think we maintain uh, our ethnicity in terms of when I become a Christian. It's not like I'm no longer... You know, whatever I am, it means, no, that's, you, you still have that. It's just God doesn't regard that when it comes to you being his child or entering into his kingdom. That's not the basis for his judgment. What matters is that we are a chosen race. And why? Why are we chosen? Because our identity and status before the Father is built on Jesus. And he is the true an exclusive chosen one of God. Yeah? So part of us inheriting the status Jesus has with the Father 
is that we are now regarded by God as a chosen race. It's as if Jesus is the first of the new humanity he's made way for us to be. It's as if he started a brand new bloodline. You're going, Israelite or Gentile? Abraham or pagan Gentiles? He's going, you're in Christ. A royal priesthood. Whoa. Remember how I said reigning in Revelation chapter, nah, I forget where I was, chapter 12 or something like that? Revelation chapter, where are you? Chapter 5. Remember how I said reigning on the earth is connected to being priesthood? Well, there you go. We're a royal priesthood. That's incredible. A holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This has to happen before you can effectively worship and serve God. You have to be called out of darkness into the light. Before that happens, we are incapable of truly worshiping God in spirit and truth. It's not possible until Jesus quickens your spirit and makes you alive through faith. Now you're in the light. Now part of your sacrifice is what? You're just proclaiming the excellencies of the king. And not just any king, but a king who laid his life down to bring you into his family. That's the beauty of the gospel. So being a priesthood means God has chosen you and he's chosen me to do the spiritual service um, that frankly the world can't do. You know how the Levites were chosen out of Israel? The Levites were the chosen tribe to be have proximity to the tabernacle or the temple and do that service and engage in that you know, spiritual mediation of sorts between Israel and God's presence. Well, you think about that, and then you just kind of copy it, and you paste it for the new covenant in that context, and you have our priesthood. It's that we have been chosen, set apart, picked out, Handpicked by God. He goes, who do I want to be? Again, like, <clears throat> you got to understand, this is something you have to be appointed to and chosen for. It is an incredible honor that I am unworthy of to worship God in spirit, to offer a sacrifice he regards, to be able to say, he accepted my sacrifice like Abel. That's an honor to serve at the feet of the king. That's something I don't deserve. It's something none of us deserve. That's why John the Baptist will say, he's coming and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm, I'm, I don't even meet the standard or qualification to stoop down and do that unto him. So what God does is he goes, no one's worthy. No one's capable of ascending the ladder to become this. So what he does is he sends his son to give us a new status and identity that now allows us to be qualified in the sight of God to serve him at such a close proximity. So much so that the Levites and the Levitical tribe and all of Israel would be so jealous if they saw what we have. If they saw what we have. And they go, oh, that's not fair. We had to, 
ah, blood and altars and incense, and it was rough. And you go, yeah, but thank you guys for being a part of making way for this. And you guys had an opportunity to look to God and believe and trust and take him at his word. And you could add this too. And there's a lot of people within Israel throughout the history who did believe. There's always a remnant. But we are a priesthood. And you need to start seeing everything you do and everything you put your hand to as a potential sacrifice that will either be acceptable to God or you miss out on that opportunity and you miss out on offering a gift that you could have given. Every sacrifice, everything I have, is essentially being given over to or used for a specific reason. It's given over to God, or it's given over to me and my self-interest and my little kingdom and the world and culture. Or I can be giving myself to God, which does involve serving people and serving culture and all that stuff, but everything I put my hands to can either be an offering to Him that He accepts, or it has the potential to dishonor Him and be an abomination. If that doesn't increase the seriousness of your calling and your identity, I don't know what will. Hebrews chapter 10, looking to the high priest, because we only have this priesthood, which is now outside of the tribe of Levi, and, you know, reaches into every tribe and nation. We only have this because the true and great high priest, the Son of God, has come and his priesthood has been established after the order of Melchizedek, based on his resurrection. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, meaning the function of the priesthood was that you were at the service of God daily. Daily. There's, that's how we ought to see our lives, is daily service to him. Not I'm taking a break this weekend, or I'm too busy, I'm too tired, like I'm exhausted, God, daily. How can I serve you, king? The priests were the ones who would have close proximity to the king. In terms of nations, kingdoms, um, there was just, because the spiritual nature of the kingdom was so important, and their set of gods, or God, was the focus of their kingdom, the priest who did the sacrifice and service unto that God was very important to the lifeblood of that nation or kingdom. And so you would have often the priests and the kings pretty closely connected. So daily, there has to be service to the king and we are in his presence. We've been called to serve in the presence of the king daily. And since they offered the same sacrifices repeatedly, which could never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time, look at the, the, the sacrifice of this ultimate high priest and son of God, Jesus. When he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering by one he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified meaning what Jesus' high priestly sacrifice the sacrifice of his life is once for all takes away all sin perfects anyone who believes for all time 
It's a once-for-all sacrifice. He's finished. So as a priest and as kingdom of priests, if we're going to follow in his footsteps and walk like Jesus, we're first of all going to trust and lean on his finished work and say, our high priest is done. And that doesn't mean I sit down and do nothing. It actually means I get to work because he's paved the way for me to engage in spiritual service to God and bring gifts and worship and love God and have close proximity. So it's not that I'm working because I'm, I'm not really sure if Jesus' work is finished. I'm trying to add to it and make sure I can do a lot of good. I'm working because it's finished. That's why. It's a very different picture than what's typically painted in, let's just take the American church, which is that, yeah, Jesus is finished, but you got to upkeep it. You got to maintain it. You got to make sure you do enough good to keep God happy or he might condemn you. And it's all based on your efforts and your moral, you know, exertion and your strength and your ability. It's not. It's not. It's based on Jesus' finished work. He's done. Just like his father finishing the work of creation and Jesus being there, he's done. He has stopped in terms of sacrificing for us. Done. Now we get to rest in that and go and serve God. Period. So I want you to see what it looks like for us as priests to offer sacrifices because for those of you who hear this, it can be a very confusing idea. You're like, give me some legs to this thing. Be imitators of God as beloved children. How? Walk in love as Christ loved us. What did he do? Well, he gave himself up for us. Self-sacrifice. Giving oneself up for the benefit of another. And Jesus' sacrifice was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Meaning it was pleasing, it was acceptable, it was a sacrifice God received gladly. And then Paul's looking that at that and going, do that. And you're like, die for people's sins. No, no, no. Give yourself up for the benefit of another. Walk in love and imitate God. What's the love of God has to do with anything? Because he loved you enough to send his son. And Jesus being God in the flesh loved you enough to lay down his life. And then you go up a little bit, you know, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And you go, that's not typically how I imagine sacrifice. That's what God regards as sacrifice. Is choosing to embody the ways of Jesus instead of your flesh. Choosing to follow the leading of the Spirit instead of your flesh. Choosing to disregard sin and temptation and remain faithful to God. What does that look like? It looks like kindness. It looks like compassion. It looks like mercy and forgiveness. It looks like patience. It very simply looks like me imitating God as my father and going, who are you? And he goes, I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. I'm kind. I'm forgiving. I'm quick to forgive. I'm slow to anger. And you go, okay, good. That's what I'm going to be. And he goes, well, that's the kind of sacrifice I'm looking for. That's what honors me. Hebrews chapter 13, you and I typically, if I were to ask you, what are some ways you can sacrifice to God?
If I were to ask you, what does it look like to offer sacrifice to God? What would you say? For some of you, the first thing that comes to mind is money. Be generous. Give the tithe. For some of you, first thing that comes to mind is worship and praise. Singing to him. Lifting my voice up. Others of you, you think, reading my Bible. Praying. And while all of those are correct, they're all incomplete. In and of themselves, they are not the only form of spiritual service and sacrifice. They are types of service and sacrifice, but they're not the entirety of what God calls us to. So the reason I make this point is because so many people, they operate by one definition of spiritual sacrifice or one example of it, and they live their life unto God thinking, all God cares about is being generous with my money. All God cares about is that I sit my butt in that pew every Sunday and be faithful even when I'm tired and football's on. Other people go, God only cares about how I handle my stuff and if I'm generous with it. And then you live life by that framework where you have this limited view of spiritual sacrifice. So now you're missing out on all the other opportunities because you're only thinking money, stuff, being in church or reading my Bible. And I would just like to expand your view a bit and say, actually, God calls us to do all those things as a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, it says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, let me ask you this. Can an unbeliever do these things? Absolutely. 100%. An unbeliever can acknowledge there's a God. An unbeliever can, can uh, I don't know, share what they have. An unbeliever can be like, you know what? I'm going to be a good person in this situation. For sure. Are those sacrifices that are pleasing to God that he regards? No. Because they're absent of the only true sacrifice God regards, which is the sacrifice of his son to make you capable of bringing pleasing sacrifices. Here we see the difference between Cain and Abel. You can bring your sacrifices to God every day. I'm trying, I'm trying, Lord. I'm piling it all up. I hope this meets the quota. I'm really struggling here, but I'm bringing it all before you. And I got a mile high pile of all the stuff I've brought you. And you're exhausted and breathing. And you're going, is it enough? Because I really want to sit down. And then you view God like Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the, the talents where the guy goes, I, I knew you to be a hard man. And you sowed, or you, you, you reaped where you didn't sow, and you demand all this. And it's, he pictures the master as this unfair, unforgiving, relentless, you know, uh, gruesome guy. Just, you just abuse us to get what you want. And some of you do see God like that. And I'm telling you, unbelievers can do good things. It's not a sacrifice. Anyone who's in the flesh can't please God. If you're in the flesh, you're absent of Christ. You're outside of faith. If you're in the spirit, now we're talking. Now you can bring sacrifices to God that he'll regard because what? It's built on and rooted in 
the sacrifice of his son, meaning you're doing it from faith. We need to redefine sacrifice. Sacrifice is not just how much does this cost me. In other words, we often view how pleased God will be with something based on the degree to which it costs us. And I think there's an element of God will honor you to the degree that you give yourself up. And he'll bless that to the degree that it costs you. But that doesn't mean God is pleased with the big, grand sacrifices. And he doesn't really care about those small moments where I choose to be patient with my wife. He doesn't really care about those small moments where I choose not to blow up on my kids. And instead, I... Take a breath in, I consider the truth of God, I say, Spirit of God, move me, and I instead mentor them into the image of Jesus. You know, people think God is not concerned with those small moments behind the scenes where I choose, you know, not to give in to temptation. He deeply cares. The small moments and big moments, the small sacrifices and the big sacrifices are equal in this sense, that they please God. The problem is we elevate certain sacrifices above others and neglect what God has truly called us to. Philippians 4.18 talks about Paul received a fragrant offering of of financial provision from the Philippian church. Romans chapter 12. As a priesthood. You can't say this to unbelievers. You can't say, offer God a pleasing sacrifice, man. You can't. It's not possible. They don't have the capacity to bring God something that he goes, that's what pleases me. What they can do is believe. What they can do is trust in Jesus' sacrifice, which is what God truly regards. And now that you're covered by his sacrifice, you can go and serve God from a place of trust, security, love, worship, reverence, all of the above. Romans 12 says, through him, mm, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you think sacrifice, if you say God wants spiritual sacrifice, thank you, Pack Attack, for that gift. And all you think of is the invisible, my mental ascent, the things I do that are, I don't know, we we over-spiritualize at times the wrong things or we over spiritualize things in general and we go well this is spiritual to god praying meditating and reading my bible actually what you do with your body has the potential to be a sacrifice he's pleased with or has the potential to dishonor him and be abominable and you go that's rough i'm not saying god is regards you As abominable, I'm saying what you bring him, like Cain, at times. He goes, that's not what I want. You're still covered by my son. That's not what I want. To be a living sacrifice means daily I'm climbing up on that altar, not to replace Jesus or add to what he's done as if it's incomplete. But because look at the mercies of God. You can only look at God's mercy for so long without getting on that altar and saying, I give you what I have. The longer you stare at his mercy and know his mercy, and the deeper you go into God's mercy, it will compel you, the Spirit of God will move you to bring more 
of a sacrifice than you did the previous time. And your sacrifice gets grander and grander as you age and follow Jesus because you just become enamored by his mercy. This is the story of the woman who comes to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair, and it's a nasty mess, and people are like, she's a sinner! And Jesus goes, I think he's sitting with a Pharisee named Simon. He goes, Simon, look at me. Simon goes, yeah. This woman, pretty radical, right? (laughs) She's crying on my feet. She loved much because she's been forgiven much. Yeah, yeah. You love little because you've been forgiven little. Meaning, Simon has a very small view of his own sin and his own need for God's mercy. This woman, though, understands just how unworthy she is and how much sin she has that separates her from God. And it's moved her to offer the sacrifice considering the mercy of God. So when we say we're a priesthood, we offer sacrifices, we are living sacrifices daily. What you choose to watch, listen to me, what you choose to pass in front of your eyes that you know it's going to come up and you put yourself in that position time and time again, knowing what's about to come across that screen, knowing what notification's about to come up, you know who's texting you. You know whether or not you should be entertaining that conversation. What you choose to do with your ears and what you, what you allow in. Now, there are times you can't control what comes in, but what you position yourself around that you're constantly listening to and meditating on, what you choose to watch, what video games you choose to play, what mindless scrolling you do and allow to come across your screen and stop. Oh, what was that? All of that, how you choose to use your hands, what you put your hands to, where you go with your feet, all these things. You have to start thinking, am I bringing a pleasing sacrifice to God through what I'm doing and what I'm engaging in? If the answer is no and it's not from faith, stop it. Because a sacrifice unto God should be holy, should be acceptable, and that's the spiritual worship God's looking for. Now, of course, it requires our mind to be renewed so we can discern the will of God, right? Otherwise, I can't know what's acceptable or holy. So I need the word of God to purify, to wash, and to transform the way that I think and see the world so I can begin to evaluate my life and go, hold on, I know what scripture says about this specific moment. I know what God says about these stepping stones to sin and how to, I know what he says. What I'm about to engage in is not holy and acceptable to God. Maybe it's not necessarily sinful, but it's not leading me to something that's good. So I'd rather turn about face and start going towards something that will be something acceptable and holy to God because that's his will for you. And when we talk about being priest, we'll end here. We'll end here. Being priests Being a kingdom of priests, which, by the way, is an eternal thing. Meaning, I want to say it in a way that makes sense. Your service to God does not stop when you die. Contrary to most people's view of eternity, of the kingdom of heaven, of all that stuff, of the afterlife. Contrary to all that, 
service and work and worship doesn't stop in the new creation. Because we look at Genesis chapter 1, we look at humanity, God made everything good. You are looking at the ideal before sin. You are looking at the ideal before death pervades God's creation and inflicts humanity. You're looking at the ideal. And you know what the ideal includes? It includes work. It includes responsibility. It includes progress and innovation and growth and expanding. It includes tending and serving the king. It involves, under his kingship, ruling and reigning. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says something pretty crazy. That you and I have to like blink a few times to make sure we actually read that right. He says, he's talking about how they can't even judge within their own community. And Paul says, look, don't you know that we are to judge angels? And you go, well, he's talking about messengers who come into the community. No. Contextually, if you read this and really follow this rabbit hole where it leads, he is talking about spiritual beings. Not that you are currently judging, ruling over, whatever that specifically looks like. He says, you will. We are to judge angels. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Look what Jesus says to the twelve. Now, some believe this is only for the twelve. Because he says, twelve. Twelve tribes sit on thrones, twelve thrones, or whatever it is. Possibly. But the point is, look at what the disciples, the apostles of Jesus, get. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And they're like, sweet, we get to eat with you. He's like, nah, that's, that's not it. When you die, it's not just about eternal bliss in terms of just gorging yourself and go eat, eating and drinking whatever you want and going wherever you want. And the, the idea of peace and bliss and being in the presence of God includes ruling and reigning. Because he goes, look, thank you, Misty, for that gift. He goes, look, you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when did that happen in the lives of the apostles based on what we see in Acts or the epistles? When did that happen? It didn't. Well, Jesus is talking about how, you know, what he told Peter, I give you the power to loose in, here on earth what will be loosed in heaven. And I don't think that's what's in mind. I actually think he's referring to when he will specifically see them in the kingdom, in the new creation, enjoying fellowship and life. And part of that involves judging, having authority. Matthew 25. I'll end here. I just want to whet your appetite. I'm not necessarily going to go in depth into this later at any point in the near future, but I want you to think about the how you picture eternity with God. Most people are like, we're singing all day, every day. Is that the only kind of worship God's prescribed us to do? Sing? Not saying that's not a part of it. I'm saying, is that the full picture of your eternity? God's like, I chose you so you could sing to me forever. You're like, uh, I guess I'm supposed to like that. I'll try. Or is there more? <laughs> I think there's more. This is what Jesus says about his kingdom. He says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them 
his property. Whoa. To one, he gave five talents, which is a currency. To other, two. To another, one. Well, that's not fair, Jesus. Why didn't you give them all equal opportunity? Well, he gave according to their ability. Is that a parallel to how Jesus actually works with his servants real time now? Possibly. Why not? Why would God be unwise as to give someone, his children, something that he knows they aren't capable of handling and let them screw themselves over? God entrusts responsibilities, possessions, what is rightfully God's. He dispenses that and entrusts it according to people's ability, I believe. Either way, the master goes away, whether you agree with me or not. He who had received five went at once and traded with them. He made five. Talent two, brother. He made two more. Ah, one talent, brother, dug it in the ground, hid his master's money. He could have at least invested it in the bank. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who received the five came forward and brought five more. The master, he said, Master, you delivered to me five. I made five more. His master said, well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Now, what point does the master judge his servants for what they've done with his possessions? Well, in the parable, it's when the master comes back. If we're to correctly, I think, parallel this to real life and what Jesus is getting at, he's going, I'm going to hold my servants accountable for what they do with what I give them. This seems to be referring to the day where we actually stand before God on the day of judgment to give an account of what we have done with what he gave. The two talent brothers said, I made two more. Master, you go, get on in here, buddy. Good and faithful servant, I'm going to set you over much. The reason I emphasize this is because in Luke's account of a similar parable, instead of entrusting just much the master will look at his servants and go, I'm going to set you over 10 cities. I'm going to set you over five cities. The being over much means, and Jesus will say something like this. If you can't be uh, faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true riches of heaven? Which I think is similar to the idea of what's going on here. That God has given you something of this world to steward and manage. In the kingdom, though, it is something different. And the reason Jesus and Luke mentioned cities is because, especially from the, from the paradigm of an ancient Israelite, that would make a butt-ton of sense. Is that, yeah, the people of God in the earth will have authority over places, over cities, Paul says, you'll judge angels. Jesus goes, you'll judge the 12 tribes of Israel. What's going on there? Brother one man comes and he goes, I I knew you're a hard man reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. So I hid it in the ground. And then the master condemns him with his own words. But the point is in verse 29, to everyone who has, more will be given. Now, while I do believe this parable is mainly about one's, how to say it? I believe this parable is about each 
person's um, understanding of the gospel or knowledge and data of the gospel. Meaning every person in the world has some degree, even if we look at, well, those unreached tribes and peoples, every person has a degree of revelation from God that they will be held accountable for. Specifically in this parable, I do believe it's about someone uh, or people who have, you know, varying degrees of understanding of the gospel. I think the one talent brother actually represents someone who did not actually believe and therefore no fruit was produced. But I've talked about this in previous messages. Regardless, the point here is not what's being entrusted. How is that parallel? I do believe it has to do with salvation and fruit that's produced. But the truth, nonetheless, however you read this parable, is that God has entrusted and he will reward based on what you did with what he entrusted. And it's not just the fruit that's produced. He honors that fruit with what looks to be different uh treasures, possessions, responsibility in the new kingdom. That's what seems to be in mind. So, we'll just end there. It's a good place to end. Just think about those things, man. It's really cool when you consider what God has called us to as a kingdom of priests. Because the kingdom of God is hidden in secret. So is our identity in some ways. First John tells us that when Jesus comes, we will see him as he is and will be transformed in his likeness. The reason the world doesn't know us now as children of God is because they don't see him and they don't know him. But eventually in in the new creation, when we're revealed as children of God and our spiritual selves are made manifest to the world at large, uh, which is similar to Romans 8, when the the glory of the sons and daughters of God are revealed, creation's longing for that. The idea there is that the world will see us as we are. But until then, not only is God's kingdom secret and hidden in some dimension because it's spiritual, but so is our identity and status as children of God. It's not perceived by the world. It will be. And God's kingdom is spiritual, which means as priests that serve this king, as his temple in the earth, we bring spiritual sacrifices that imitate Jesus's, that are according to truth and moved by the Spirit. And as we do, we can anticipate each of us will have a degree of authority and reign and rule in the new creation, which is wild. It's wild. But it's awesome. I didn't write the script, just delivering the message. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. I need your help. Would you rate this podcast and give it an honest review to let others know what they can expect from this podcast? It would really help us in reaching more people with the truth of God's word. And be sure to check out AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of our free resources like trainings, Bible courses, worksheets, our online church, and much more. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and leaving a good review for others.